0: Welcome to episode nine of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France.
1: And I'm Doc Shauna Springer.
0: And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Mill Media Group. Mill Media Group is a proven web design and digital media agency specializing in supporting organizations focusing on the military population. Find out more about them at millmediagroup.com. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an open and honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. If you want more people to find the show, make sure to give us an honest rating and review on your podcast player of choice. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. you can find the group in the show notes on your podcast app of choice or by searching for Seeking the Military Suicide Solution on Facebook. One of the goals of the show is to discuss how we can bring the knowledge of experts at the national level to those who are doing the work at the local level. Our guest today is somebody who's been doing research on this subject for a number of years. Shauna, what can you tell us about Dr. Ramshand?
1: Sure. Dr. Rajiv Ramshand is an award-winning researcher, well-known in the suicide prevention field for doing research on an array of topics, including military and veteran mental health, suicide prevention in the military and civilian populations, military and veteran caregivers, adolescent delinquency, the impact of disasters on community health, and violent extremism. To design, execute, and write up even one high-quality study, let alone many of the field's most defining studies, takes dedicated effort. I'm always interested to learn what motivates people. I asked Rajiv about his motivation, and he said this, I'd like to shine a light in dark places. He told me about a story of how someone once found him through his research and asked him to get on the phone with someone who had lost their partner to suicide. He agreed and was conferenced into a call with a deeply grieving partner and 15 or 20 loved ones, also on the line, friends and loved ones of the deceased. This was one of those times when he felt like he was really living out his purpose. In addition, Rajiv celebrates work-life balance. And when he's not conducting research at the top of the policy agenda, He enjoys spending time with his Tibetan terrier, traveling, cooking, and taking in a show at the theater. It's a pleasure to have him join us for the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast today.
0: You know, I've talked sometimes about the potential guests that we were going to bring on. And for me, Rajiv was always one of the ones that was somebody that needed to be a part of this project. I recall even as a grad student, when he was back at RAND in 2013 and 2012, seeing him and, and his work on suicide prevention for those veterans, maybe with bad paper. So he's been talking about this for a long time as a strong voice in the space. And so I really appreciate being able to bring him on the show. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. Have been addressing this for a long time, and and I remember early on a lot of the the conversations around needing to make sure that veterans with bad paper and suicide prevention for all service members. So, if anyone might be able to answer this question, what's working? What is helping the suicide stop in the military population?
2: So, I got into this field. I started doing this research in around two thousand eight with the military. There had been an existing infrastructure looking at suicide prevention activities in the military, but I think in 2008 is when people really started to start thinking about it seriously and taking it seriously, when the data started to really indicate something was amiss, you know, that a spike was um, a trend, an increasing trend. So a lot has happened since then as a society. We have learned that the national suicide rate has been increasing. There has been everything from the Action Alliance to prevent suicide to the creation of the military's Office of Suicide Prevention, huge investments in research that have been made, huge investments in action. So a lot of activity has happened since 2008. What's working? You know, I think that in terms of where the evidence is strongest, it remains, in my assessment, focused on treatment for suicidality. And I think that what we've learned is that there used to be a hope that if we treat mental health symptoms broadly, that will reduce suicidality and and down the road, that mental health, mental health, you know, symptoms kind of lead to suicidal thinking so if we stop the mental health symptoms then we might stop the suicidal thinking and I think that may be true but I think we've also learned that if people with mental health symptoms also have expressed intent or desire to die then we have to treat those thoughts directly and you know Shauna's an expert in this and so I think that that we've learned and so now it's getting that message out into the provider community I think that our, Ways to identify people who are suicidal are getting better. The prime example of that is the VA's Reach Vet program, which uses um, artificial intelligence or predictive analytics, however you might want to call it, to identify people at risk for suicide using data as opposed to relying on their expressed communication. So it finds those hidden suicidal cases. So I think we've gotten a lot better in that. And I'm really optimistic on the way forward with that. And then I think that we've also gotten really good about thinking that while mental health is important, it isn't the only solution. And the CDC recently came out with a framework for suicide prevention that talks about looking at all levels of communities. And so I think communities have become really engaged to think, okay, yes, we have our mental health, but what else can we do? What else can we as a community, do to prevent suicide? There's a lot of communities that are trying different approaches. I think that's really exciting. So, those are the three things that I think are working. <laughs> and I say that in quotes because, you know, the suicide rate has continued to increase. But then again, maybe it'll take a little bit more time for us to see where we end up.
0: You know, I'm, I'm hearing really one thing in between all three of those things. So, treatment for suicidality as opposed to treatment for mental health. Dr. Craig Bryan was on the show and not all suicides are due to a mental health illness. And it's not all depression. It's not all anxiety. It could be a financial crisis or things like that. And so addressing those suicidal thoughts and behaviors as opposed to just being mental health, identifying high-risk individuals, again, it would be much more likely to be identified by someone who's not a mental health professional. I'm not going to be the first line of defense as a clinician. And then finally, not having it be solely in the mental health field. I'm hearing that, again, all three of those are, it's not just a mental health problem, but it's a community-based problem.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that we have to think about firearms. But at the same time, I would actually push back a little bit because one of the things that we do know is that it's not exclusively a mental health problem, sure, but we just keep seeing the evidence over and over again about the relationship between mental health Um, problems and suicidality. So from a public health approach, we have universal prevention things where we just kind of, you know, vaccinate everyone or something like that, whatever it may be. And then we have selected and targeted interventions. So we've already identified a group of people, those who are currently with mental health symptoms who are at elevated risk. We need to figure out what to do with that group because we're going to get more bang for our buck Um, in preventing suicide among this high-risk group. I think we have a lot to do within the mental health sphere about improving the quality of care. So, for example, I don't think that a lot of the mental health technical workforce, clinicians, counselors, I don't think a lot of them are equipped to screen for suicidal behaviors or to treat suicidality. And I think that we need to disseminate those types of evidence-based practices. We need to get those evidence-based treatments into the fields and into our clinical workforce. So I agree, we have to take a community approach, absolutely. But we also can't ignore the strong relationship that we know exists between mental health symptoms and suicidality.
0: No, I absolutely agree. I'd actually had a conversation with Stacey Friedenthal, um, and, and she is, is a big proponent about having clinicians learn more about suicide. And we were talking about my own graduate work, and and I was taught safety planning. Or or risk assessment and then do an M1 hold, right? Those were the two things. And there wasn't the, you know, what do you do with someone who has vague suicidal ideations or simply being comfortable asking that question? And so and then there is this, it's not all on the community to solve, and it's not all on the mental health professional. There needs to be a combined approach.
2: Yeah, that's right. A lot of businesses will come and say, What can we do to prevent suicide among our workforce? And my number one recommendation is always to do a needs assessment. What do you have leverage over and what do you have control over? And what I mean there is like what within your organization is stressing people out. So for the police force, for example, it could be seniority scheduling where the senior police officers have preference. So they, you know, tend to work during the weekdays and on nice shifts and the younger, you know, guys are working evenings and weekends And that's not necessarily conducive to raising a family. And it could be something that stresses people out. So think about their scheduling might be one way that they can address the issue. Schools, I think we're learning about the importance of sleep. So school um, start times are so early. The evidence really tells us that we should delay school times for students to help them get their sleep. I think something like that could be an indirect way to prevent suicide. But these are large structural changes that require a lot of hard work. But we're dealing with suicide, and it's a challenging issue. And if there was a Band-Aid approach, as you said earlier, we would have it, right? We would have it done. I think it's going to take a real hard and heavy look into people's practices and thinking about the stressors that their employees, students, or others are facing.
0: We know that almost everything we do is suicide prevention, But what you're talking about is getting the elementary school teacher, they do suicide prevention. And the barista that I just bought my coffee from earlier today does suicide prevention. And that's something maybe that that's one of the gaps is that it seems like the suicide prevention is the domain of so-called experts, and we just pass that off to them.
2: Yeah, you know, that's interesting. When it comes to the fifth grade teacher and the barista and all these other people, sometimes I worry like... I do think that they play a role, but sometimes I wonder whether they need kind of training in suicide statistics or how to ask the question about suicidality, which is really a focus, or whether they just need to be empathetic and have warm eyes and have a smile. And if they notice somebody is crying to offer like a handkerchief, you know, I think that these, this emotional intelligence, these small acts have really kind of ripple effects. And I think that if we were in a society where people just genuinely cared for one another, that might turn the tide on suicide more than mental health treatment or a lot of things.
0: I think that is one of the, the common themes that I'm hearing is, you know, if we're just nicer to each other, that might go a long way towards doing this. After the break, Rajiv and I talk about whether or not there's a need to train every person in all aspects of clinical mental health, or whether we just need to be nicer to each other. Remember, you can find the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS, or in your podcast player choice.
3: I'm Melissa Mosier. I'm a local Army spouse, daughter, sister, and a proud team member of Mill Media. I'm here at our headquarters at the Great Fort Head, Texas. Mill Media is a military-affiliated team that wants to serve you the way that you served our country. With mostly military retirees, veterans, and families as our staff, we understand the military mindset. Mill Media is the one place that prioritizes your goals above all else, which you will see from our incredible customer service. With over 25 years of experience, we work with everyone from startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs and nonprofits. mill media group is the digital division of top search business solution that specializes as a web design and digital marketing platform so visit our website today for a free website analysis so that you can sit back relax and let us give you the perfect online presence to hear more about what mill media is doing and will continue to do call me today at 254-554-0974 or visit our website that's millmediagroup.com so call me whenever you're ready
0: But you do bring up a great point in a statement that you had said is it would be a very bleak world if all we're doing is thinking that the next person next to us is about to take their own life. If we're always on edge thinking that everyone's in danger, then that's all we're going to see, you know, confirmation bias and stuff like that. But it's really about building wellness in our community so that people don't get to that point.
2: Yeah, and I agree with that. So a lot of the military training is this kind of gatekeeper approach you know ask care escort the ace cards you know ask if somebody's okay to care so we're all just like looking for these behaviors that might be indicative of suicide and by focusing in on specific behaviors are we stopping to see people for who they are which is very complex and very multi-dimensional and just having very intuitive human emotional re- responses so and, and I think that if you you know the term resilience has been used a lot. And I think if you go back to the original kind of literature on resilience, it was very much about kind of fostering this natural ability that people have and and recognizing these strengths that people have, to form pe- friendships, to form um, partnerships and things of that nature. And, and I, I like that. And I think that if we could go back to that world as opposed to this world where, Everyone's just has like a microscope and and everyone's kind of taught to be counselors. People often say it's like, you know, everyone has CPR. So if they see someone choking, they can do the Heimlich maneuver or some kind of first aid response. Everyone said, you know, we have the mental health analog to that. I struggle with that sometimes, whether that is an actual direct comparison, whether everyone can be equipped in something to prevent an acute crisis from happening versus just kind of being a nicer person.
0: (laughs) Right. And when I think that's, and there's a couple of good parallels there, when we're looking at how things were on active duty versus how they were now, I was not a mental health professional when I was in the army, but I'm pretty much doing the same thing that I did as a platoon sergeant or first sergeant. You know, hey, Joe, what's going on? Right. You know, let's take a it. Right. It is that, you know, now I have the clinical expertise and the training to do that. So what are some of the action steps? We we have the awareness. We've been talking about this. And how do we move beyond awareness into action? What action steps can people take to address suicide personally in their family or their community?
2: I think we need to have aggressive training of the mental health workforce so that they can screen suicide for suicidality and treatment options for people who then screen positive for suicidality. I think it's getting better among Current programs, but I think that there's a lot of people who went through training, who are licensed, who still don't have that training. So I think disseminating those best practices is a priority. I think we have to get into our emergency departments. There was a paper that was just released a few weeks ago about in California, it was in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it showed that people who go to emergency departments either with suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, or just non suicidal. Have an elevated risk of suicide within the year following their visit to the emergency department than someone else. So that suggests to me that we've got to target people who go into emergency departments. What does that look like? Maybe some screening, maybe some immediate care for those who screen positive, and then proactive follow up once discharged from the emergency department. I think we really need to be thinking about emergency departments. You know, I've done a lot of work on caregiving, um, military and veteran caregiving. I think we need better supports for family members who are caring for somebody with mental health challenges. A lot of our caregiving support programs are really targeted towards young adults who are taking care of their mothers or fathers who are suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, and that's really great and noble. I don't think that what works for them, respite care is a perfect example, can be translated to a spouse caring for her husband with post-traumatic stress disorder, who's just trying to navigate their symptoms and just kind of prevent just constantly thinking two steps ahead about the trip to the grocery store and whatnot. So I think we really have to think about how do we support um, those caregivers for persons with mental health. I think there's only one evidence-based intervention for a family. It's the here program that was developed by NAMI. So how can we support these families to me is really important. And I guess in terms of what people can do, you know, I'm always struck. It's, it's. I used to be very hesitant, like when I was on the airplane and people said, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I do research. What do you do research on? I do mental health research. Oh, what type of mental health research? And then ultimately, I would say suicide. But you know, more often than not, people have a story that they want to tell about how it's affected them. And when suicides happen, people will often call me because they know that I know something about it. I don't know if I can help them at that time. But I try my best. But that also suggests to me that people need outlets to talk about their experiences with. And I hope that through getting more people who've been affected by suicide to having the discussion, to talking about it, to critically evaluating the research, I think that we can really start to make some headway. That said, I say that with a caveat that we have to be very careful about the conversation too, because we know that there's this contagious element to suicide as well. So we need to have a conversation that's done in a very mindful way so that we aren't inadvertently normalizing suicidal acts because we don't want to create a society where that quote unquote solution is is an option for more people, right? We want to make it really rare, but we want to talk about it more.
0: No, I, and I think that's a great point. And, it's
2: hard, sorry, it's like, it's, we talk about it, but be careful how we talk about it. It's so, it's but, it so but I was fun. thinking
0: the same thing. There is this knife edge that that we really need to balance mm-hmm. in that we need to raise awareness, but we need to go beyond the awareness. And, and to build the wellness, we need to talk about it, but we don't need to focus on it entirely. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think this is uh, some really great points. And that's what I love. And I think maybe we don't need everyone to
2: be talking about suicide, but we need people to know that they have someone to talk to, right? Whether it's about suicide or opiate use and overdose or, you know, whatever it may be, people are facing a number of challenges. They just need to know that someone's there for them. Um, I think that that goes a long way. And I think we have so much power that we don't even know. And the things we do, the things we say influence each other's lives in such, you know, really profound ways. You can make people feel really good, but you also have that power that it goes in the opposite direction as well. So it's a careful
0: balance. No, I absolutely agree. And again, the emerging theme is let's just not be jerks to each other. Uh, and <laughs> we can go a long way to alleviating this. Uh, I really appreciate your, your time and, and, and really appreciate all the work that you're doing on this subject.
2: Thanks. I'll, I'll keep doing it. I appreciate you bringing the
0: conversation to the
2: masses and elevating the discussion. So thank you for all that you do as well.
0: No problem. As I thought that I would, I had a great conversation with Rajiv. What did you think?
1: thought it was a great conversation. It was hard to pick out just a couple of points in this one. One of the things I did kind of want to pull out is that Rajiv made the comment that those in frontline roles, mental health clinicians more specifically, need to treat suicidal thoughts directly. And as Rajiv mentioned, he knows that I'm in full agreement on this. We see this as a critical gap in the training that mental health providers receive. As mental health providers, we work with people who are coming to us because they're suffering and experiencing feelings of hopelessness. It's inherently high-risk work. For clinicians, losing a patient to suicide is one of our worst fears. And if we as clinicians have not faced off ourselves against this fear, we'll do what most people do. We'll try our hardest to avoid the situation or we'll behave in ways that project our own anxiety about suicide and therefore limit disclosure in our patients. As Rajiv said, unfortunately, our training often fails to provide us with a working understanding of how to address the things we fear the most. It's kind of like training firefighters to control routine fires without teaching them how to handle backdrafts and flashovers, which are some of the most intense and fear-inducing situations firefighters face in their work. With veteran patients in particular, we have a very narrow window of opportunity to build the trust, and it takes all the courage that some people have to come to therapy. Therapy may be a last resort for some people. Part of the solution is training focused on addressing suicide-specific thinking. However, I would add that in addition, those who work with the military and veteran population need much better insight into the psychology of suicide among those who serve in the military. Why? Because the story of suicide in the military population is often not the same as the story of why people die in the civilian population. And this psychology is what I'm going to unpack in my next book, due out in a couple months. The book is called Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. The explanation I have is not something that can be summarized in a few quick sound bites. It's an interplay between the warrior ethos and injuries that are often more invisible than what we have termed the so-called invisible injuries of war. We're talking about things like moral injury, survivor guilt, shame, and cutoff grief. Duane, you and I could do a whole show on this topic, how the things we think are most helpful can actually increase risk.
0: You're absolutely right. For some clinicians, this topic is a little bit like a hot potato. As soon as it lands in my lap, what do I have to do to be able to get it out of my lap? You know, it, the minute the word suicide, and then all of a sudden we're getting ready to do uh, an M1 hold. Whereas in, in Rajiv and I talked about it in the show, in my master's program, we didn't have a lot of uh, training on how to address suicide. But I find it's a lot more helpful to, bring the subject up, let's talk about it, explain, hey, this is how far we're going to go with talking about it. And if it goes past this point, then we have to start thinking about keeping you safe. But telling my clients that, hey, I'm comfortable having this conversation yeah, so that we can have space to discuss this so it doesn't get to a point of crisis.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, I came up in the days of suicide safety contracts where you were supposed to tell a person to sign something that said, I promise not to end my life or take any pills. Now we decisively know that that doesn't work and it can really backfire. So yeah, that was the training I got. Second point was this. Rajiv talked about how we often overlook the support needs of caregivers in the military and veteran population. Many years ago, I worked on a study of bone marrow transplant survivors who survived when most people didn't. This was in the early days when bone marrow transplant was a new innovation in care. We followed those who survived, interviewing them and their partners 20 years later. What we learned is that the mental health impact was often more pronounced for partners than for patients themselves. The cancer diagnosis had changed the rhythm of life for both partners. Both partners feared recurrence of the cancer. But while our medical system attends fairly exclusively to the needs of the identified patient, there is often the fact that the partner is overlooked. And further, there's a unique form of helplessness, and we think about psychologically how we feel when someone we love is suffering. Think about it this way. If you or your closest loved one, maybe your child or the love of your life, had to suffer from a serious chronic health problem, would you rather be the one who has the problem or watch your loved one suffer with it? Many of us would say, let it be me. I'd rather suffer then watch my child or my spouse go through that. So imagine the psychological pain and stress that caregivers feel as they take this journey with a loved one. It's not just that their whole life revolves around the axis of the caregiving goal, which is certainly part of it. It's the psychological impact of caring just as much, but being one step removed from directly fighting the challenge. I know that Rajiv has much more to say on this, since the needs of caregivers has been a focus of his research. I'd love to hear more on this and see more conversation, perhaps on our Seeking the Military Suicide Solution Facebook page, about resources and meaningful steps we can take to support military caregivers.
0: I absolutely agree. I often say that my wife and my children served my deployments very differently than I did, right? As well as my mother and my sisters. And all of those are given different resources to manage that. But then afterwards, we have the, you know, the people that are taking care of or or supporting veterans as caregivers. And a lot of times, veteran spouses weren't with the service member when they were in the military, right? So they came along, like, I never knew my father before Vietnam, because I was born five years after Vietnam. And so the family members, the people who are are caregivers, maybe don't have the understanding. and, And it's an isolating situation. They don't have the resources. So I absolutely agree. Definitely the focus on military spouse suicide. I had a colleague share an article recently that did some research into uh, secondary education age military children and suicide. So this is beyond just a service member and veteran suicide situation to a military family situation. So I absolutely think that's a a great point. I really wanna appreciate everybody for taking the time to check out the show. Remember, you can get the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS09, where you can get the links to everything that we talked about in the show, as well as finding it on militarytimes.com and your podcast player of choice. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding James. While you're at it, check out our sponsors, Mill Media Group. They're a web design and digital media agency with over 25 years of experience in supporting service members, veterans, and their families. They specialize in working with startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs, nonprofits, and city and state and local governments. As a veteran owned business, they're uniquely qualified to work with those who want to reach an audience in the military and veteran community. If you have a dream or a vision, they can help bring it to life and get you in front of your audience. You can contact them at 254-554-0974 or find them online at millmediagroup.com.
1: Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we're not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician.
0: You can find out more about the work that Shauna's doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, a Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chat online with them at VeteranCrisisLine.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution, and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.